not sure if uh, you've noticed or not, but I always try to make it up for power on Gab's chords, and if I'm taking my time to come up, he drags it out and it gets really, really slowly, and then I start feeling guilty and I have to catch him up. She's good at that. Well, good morning again. Glad to see you all. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. It's where we're going to be today. Um, Before we begin, I'm going to just cover just a little uh, couple of things that we went over last week. Last week, we uh, did all of chapter 1 and sort of set up the story as to what we were going. And uh, I'm just going to go over some of those things again. Uh, And what we saw majorly last week was this theme of uh, irony in the first book of Ruth. And uh, I'll explain what I mean by by that. Uh, Naomi's husband is a man man named uh, uh, Eli Melech, or Elimelech, and his name name, uh, means God is my king. And what he decides to do is uh, take his life into his own hands, leave the place where God has called him to live, and actually go to the land of the Mo, uh, land of Moab or Moabites, uh, uh, which is a pagan land, a, a land that is filled with people who don't know Jesus, who don't love the God of the Bible. So uh, he takes his life into his own hands. Uh, they flee to Moab to survive. That was the, the, the plan, was that uh, there was a famine in the land. They need to go to Moab in order to survive. Uh, he has two sons, uh, Malon, uh, whose name means sickness, and Chilion, whose name means dying, right? All right, so some, some, of, you, some of you are a little wary on this. You have a child, brand new into this world. You look upon the face of that angel, and you say, I'm going to name you sickness and dying. That's what, that's what this guy did. Um, and what happens is all three of these men end up dead. This is what happened last week. So Amalek, his two sons, Malon, and Chilion all end up dying. Uh, in addition to that, in the irony, the word Bethlehem, which is where they live, actually means house of bread, and there was a famine in the house of bread. There was no bread in the house. Uh, and so all of this sort of stacks up to give us this entry point to this story, um, and it ends up with Naomi and Ruth going back to Israel. The other daughter, her name is Orpah. She decides she's going to go home to her family, however, uh, Ruth is, has a conversion experience, and she was going to stick with Naomi, and that's where we are. So if you have your Bibles, uh, this is Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Ruth 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elmelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor And she said to her, go my daughter. That is, Naomi said to her, go my daughter. So she set out, this is Ruth, and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. One day I'll get it right. So we're introduced to uh, one of the main characters in this book, a guy by the name of Boaz. Uh, And what we know of Boaz from the book of Ruth, both here and a little later on, is that he is a worthy man. Uh, Now, this is really interesting. In most books of the Bible, men and mankind are usually depicted as the villains of the piece. 
right? If you were to, to look at the book of Esther, which we just finished our study uh, through that book, all of the male characters, even, uh, uh, e- even the good guys in that, char- in that book have character defects, defects and flaws, right? Uh, you've got Haman, he's a wicked man. You have the king, he's terrible. Uh, everyone in that book has character flaws. And what's interesting is when we're reading through the book of Ruth, uh, Boaz is not described as having any flaws. Boaz is described as a worthy man. He's worthy of respect. He's worthy of trust. And what's really interesting is that he is worthy of imitation. And again, this is very uh, different than most books of the Bible. Most books of the Bible uh, focus that mankind is bad, evil, and sinful. We should not sort of emulate mankind, but rather we should emulate Jesus Christ. Uh, and we should emulate his example. Uh, but Boaz is sort of given as this, uh, this figure of respect worthy of imitation. Um, I read one commentary, and I'm going to, to admit that it was a relaxed kind of commentary, uh, but it described, uh, it described Boaz as the dude of dudes. Like, this is the guy... This is the guy who hosts the Super Bowl party. This is the guy who you go over to his house. He always has uh, Coca-Cola in his fridge, not Pepsi, because he's, he's the dude of dudes, so he's got the right stuff in his fridge. He's the one that hosts the barbecue. He's the one uh, that, that, that invites everyone over, and everyone has a party. And he is in direct contrast so far to the father and two sons who are sickly, who are dying, who at this point have actually passed away and are dead. These people who disobeyed the living God, who disobeyed what they were supposed to do, who moved their family out of the care and trust of God and tried to handle it on their own, they're in direct contrast to Boaz, who is the dude of dudes. If you don't believe me, Boaz, the name literally means uh, strength or mighty one or man's man. Like that's what his name means. Like I'm just not, ma- I'm not making this up. I'm not pulling it from thin air. His name literally means man of mans. And as we sort of established in the book of Ruth, all of the names mean something. The names in themselves tell this story, the story of Ruth. And so Boaz is the man of man. Now, if we continue on in this little bit of story after Boaz has been introduced, the women are going to have a conversation. Now, last week we pointed out that over 50% of this book, in fact, I think it's 85% of this book, is actually made up of conversations. Uh, and those conversations are usually between the women, and we used last week to highlight the fact that men and women, our brains work differently. Men, we're pretty good at building relationships with minimal talking and minimal interaction. Ladies, on the other hand, however, build their relationships through communication, through talking. Men can walk up to each other, uh, I, I heard a Christian comedian put it this way. Uh, if a man has a best friend who he doesn't see for 10 years and suddenly he sees that best friend walking out of the desert and comes up to him, the man will usually say to him, hey, and that's about it, right? In 10 years, I've got a new best friend because you were gone. Like, that's about the, the extent of the man communication. However, women, and I don't mean to be stereotypical, but you guys freak out if you haven't seen a person for two hours, Right? Have you ever seen teenage girls at school, they literally uh, had a class period uh, separate from their best friends, and then afterwards you think they haven't seen each other for 25 years, right? Our brains work differently. Neither is bad, neither is wrong, just differently. 
And so what we're seeing again here is that Naomi is going to have a conversation with Ruth, not with, uh, yes, with Ruth, and, and she's going to say to Ruth, go out and do these things because, and here's, here's what's very important uh, about this situation, uh, they have no food, they have no security, they have no housing in this culture. If you were married and your husband died, uh, you were in a pickle, you would usually, you have your sons take care of you, but her sons have also died, so she has no form of security. They are the protector, they are the defender. She has no husband, she has no father, she has no sons, which means that these two women are utterly and absolutely alone. There's no one to take care of them, no one to look after them, no one to provide for them. This is a sticky situation for them. Without the direct intervention of God, they are looking at dying. They're flat broke and they're getting hungry. Verse 4. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Remember that. And said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So this sort of shows you uh, how Boaz is in the eyes of his servants. Boaz is a good person. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever had that boss, right, who is a nice person who you actually look forward to working with. Like, like most people, when you go into the office and the boss says to you, good morning, you say good morning out of politeness. You don't reply, the Lord bless you. Well, whatever. I mean, maybe you do. Maybe you're, you're that guy. Uh, but, but Boaz's men show him respect and show that they enjoy him as a boss. They like being his subordinates. He says to them, the Lord be with you, and they answer, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? We'll talk about that in just one second. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now Boaz is not just a good-looking man, he's also an honorable man. And verse 5 is where Boaz sees Ruth for the first time. This is the, if this is a Disney film, this is the moment that she's walking through the field with, you know, birds floating around, maybe perching on the hands, the, the, the deer are in the background. This is the, that snow white moment when she's singing, someday my prince will come in the, in the forest and the prince sees her. Like that is this moment. This book is structured uh, very differently than most of the history books of Scripture. In fact, it is almost structured more like wisdom literature in the way that it tells the story. It's painting a narrative picture, and that narrative picture is that of love. And this guy sees her for the first time and goes, whoa. Now, uh, this is very interesting for me, especially in light of today's culture. In today's culture, we're very much attracted to beauty. Yes, like that's, that's not news to any of you, that our culture revolves around this sort of cult of beautiful people, that a beautiful person can do and say whatever they want as long as they're pretty, as long as they're attractive. They can sort of get away with anything. Uh, and so what, what's interesting to me here is that Ruth uh, doesn't make herself up in the morning. She doesn't put on makeup. She's not wearing her best clothing. Uh, her and her mother are starving to death. They have no food. They have no. Uh, they, they have a place to stay, but that's about it. Maybe some straw mats on the ground. Like they don't have 
anything to make themselves attractive, and yet Ruth in herself was beautiful enough that Boaz was able just to look and go, can I meet her? Right? So this is what I'm saying. When, I, when I'm telling you that this is structured like a narrative love story, this is, this is some of those things that indicate that that is how it is structured. And so verse 5 is when they meet for the first time. And Boaz, being an honorable man and a good man, says, you know what, maybe I should meet her. Verse 7, he said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. She's not being assertive. She's not demanding. Uh, and again, going back over to here where you have beautiful people, where you have attractive people, very often those attractive people will assert themselves onto others. They'll think, because I'm attractive, I deserve anything that I want. And Ruth, being a good person internally, uh, loving God internally, she's not pushing her attractiveness and forcing that on other people and making other people do what she says. And so instead she asks humbly, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she was confused from early morning until now for a short rest. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz is offering her care and protection with nothing in return. This is how, uh, when we make the statement that he's an honorable man, that we make the statement that he's a good man, he's not doing this in the thought of, hey, I'm going to get something in return. Instead, he's seeing someone who has a need and he's taking care of that need. He says, you know what? Stick with my field. Stick with my guys. My guys are good. Uh, I've commanded them not to touch you and they won't because my men are good men. Drink from my water. Now, in those days, it was the women who drew the, most of the water. However, if you were working in a field, the men would draw the water, but it was only for men. So he's saying, uh, throw that cultural thing out the window. Instead of that, you are able to then uh, drink from their water and you're one of my people. Just be here and I am going to protect you. Protection and care with nothing in return. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight? And what should you, sorry, and, and that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And this is what Boaz says. He answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. We live in a world that is entirely negative, that is trending towards darkness, hatred, and the opportunity to jump on you with the slightest fault. You do one thing out wrong, you put one pill out of line, there is, uh, there's no gentleness in the world anymore, there's no understanding, there's no grace. We live in a dark world, so when you do something that is good, it stands here, we're moving into one of the, uh, we're in, sorry, one of the most turbulent times of the nation of Israel. This is the, the time of the judges. We had read uh, in Judges, the, the very last uh, line, that everyone did evil in their own, uh, everyone did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was good in their own eyes. Everyone's just doing what they want. They're, they're, they're letting their debase 
uh, most sinful natures come out. They're doing all of this. So in that period of complete and utter darkness, the light of something good happening is shining. And I challenge you to not look at the world that we are in today, in the darkness that we're in today, and say that if you did something good, maybe that light would pierce the darkness. Ruth is a timeless book, but it is also a timely book. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And in verse 12 it says this, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, in verse 12, something is happening here that maybe uh, maybe you wouldn't notice if I didn't point it out. So I want to point this out and just spend the last couple of minutes that we have this morning pointing this out. I said that uh, normally in Scripture, whenever men are described, they're usually the bad guys, right? And, and you with me on that? You, like, you understand that? Scripturally, most of the time, if you have anyone other than Jesus, they're the bad guy in the story, right? That's how Scripture is. And so suddenly, we have this interesting thing happening in the book of Ruth. We're introduced to Boaz. He's introduced as an honorable man, as a good man, as a man to be uh, imitated, a man who takes care of his servants, whose servants love him. And so uh, if you're looking at the entire council of Scripture, this story sticks out. And in verse 12, there's something really interesting here that says, it says this, uh, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That phrase, wings and refuge, is incredibly important in Scripture. Okay. The word wings is incredibly important in Scripture. Do you believe me? Here we go. Here's the reason why. The word wings is the Hebrew word kanaf. It doesn't mean wings as the wings of a bird. Okay? So most of the time when you read this sentence, if you were to read this, uh, we, we enjoy a full reward given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That wings, most of us in our mental, uh, the mental picture that we build up is that of, let's say, a bird. Let's say, uh, let's say a chicken with wings pulling chicks underneath the wings. That's the mental picture you get, right? The word kinaf in scripture actually doesn't mean wings as of the wings of the bird. It actually means the hem of a garment. And so what would happen in these days is uh, after the law was given uh, to the Israelites uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, godly men would start wearing long robes. The robes would come right down to their ankles and they would have... Uh, they would actually have uh, a prayer shawl around. That's an, uh, a different thing that they would have. And eventually this word kanaf came to mean both the, the prayer shawl that was around their neck and the robes that went down to the ground. So later on in the book, uh, in one of the books of the prophets, it says that healing will arrive uh, with healing. Uh, the Son of Man will come with healing in his wings, right? Do you remember that? That's a, a, a very common thing that we repeat, healing in his wings. Again, that word wings doesn't mean the wings of a bird. It means the tips of a prayer shawl. And then later on in the New Testament, we have this guy named Jesus who's walking along 
and a woman who had a disease of the blood for a long period of time stretched out her hand and grabbed the edge of his cloak. And power went out from his cloak and healed the woman. The word for cloak is the same one used here. The reason that Boaz is described as a good man, as an honorable man, as a man worthy of emulation is because he represents Jesus Christ. What you'll find throughout most of scripture is whenever you get to the good guy in the story, it's a foreshadowing of Christ and what Christ will do in the New Testament. Here in this particular book, in the book of Ruth, Boaz is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Someone who is in a position of power and authority and yet still has time for the least of those in his population. Uh, a, a person who has uh, power and authority and has uh, a, a large sort of resources and, uh, and gifts available. Uh, scripture tells us that those who are in Christ Jesus are going to be co-heirs with the glory and power of Christ, but we can't imagine the, Im the immeasurable riches of those uh, of Christ Jesus. Those riches and resources uh, that Christ has are shown here by Boaz being able to say, you know what, don't go to that field, stay in my field, I'll be able to feed you. Don't drink uh, someone else's water, drink my water. Jesus himself said that I am the living water. Anyone who drinks from me the water that I give them shall never thirst again. And Boaz is here sharing water. There are similarities that continue to go and to grow throughout this book. I'm telling you, as we move forward in the study of the book of Ruth, that Boaz is the imperfect shadowing of Jesus Christ. To the point where Boaz says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to allow you to take rest under my kenaf, under my wings. And that Jesus Christ himself said to people, if you are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. And that Jesus' own kenaf healed a person who reached out in faith and touched it. Boaz is the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, which is the only reason that he is worthy of emulation.